you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see... You are about to see... That belongs in a museum! You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum! Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fine Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and this is our annual Christmas episode. And that means there can only be one guest joining me. That's Chris Franklin. Hi, Chris. Hey, Rob. How's it going? It's going great. It's, I always, you know, obviously, I enjoy podcasting with you. We do it all. We do it all the time. But but we've made it a tradition to do these Christmas episodes. You come back on the show on, in December. We talk about some Christmas related comic. And in the past couple of Christmas ones, we've kind of you know gone far afield. We've talked Archie in Christmas. We've talked mm-hmm. uh, the Flintstones and Christmas. That yeah. doesn't even make any theological sense. Uh, but now, <laughs> this month, we're, we're a little bit uh, kind of more in our wheelhouse. And we're going to be talking about Marvel Treasury Edition number eight, Giant Superhero Holiday Grab Bag, featuring uh, some of the uh, all-stars of the Marvel Universe. Uh, before we talk about the stories, though, Chris, did you have this one as a kid? No, I did not have this one or any of the... Actually, any of the DC or Marvel treasuries as a kid, I've picked up a few, you know, since then. But uh, and I would have loved to have had them because anything I was even back then as a kid, I was a huge, huge on Christmas. Not just the idea of getting, you know, presents and everything, but the just the Christmas season in general. So I would have I definitely would have picked this up if I'd seen it. I, I don't remember ever seeing it. So. Gotcha. It's a, it, it is a very fun collection. Uh, again, we'll be, we'll be going through the stories in a moment. Let's talk about the cover. Uh, it was, uh, this, by the way, this book was on sale November 25th, 1975. So perfect timing, just right around Thanksgiving time for the Christmas holiday uh, on the cover by John Romita. Uh, and you've got Hulk, Nick Fury, Spider-Man, Luke Cage, Power Man, and Dr. Strange all celebrating a, uh, you know, celebrating the Christmas. And there's a little kid, uh, reading off his list of, uh, I guess, stuff that he wants to Hulk, who is in a Santa outfit. I, this this cover, and you know, obviously, I never mean to un- to um, underplay how hard it is to draw things well. Because Chris, you know how hard it is. I know how hard it is. We've both had experience with that. At the yes. same time, this looks like the kind of image that John Romita could have done in his sleep. You know what I mean? Like it's so <laughs> classically Marvel. You feel like he just. He probably like was drawing this with one hand and like doing some other work with another hand or something. And it's just so Mar seventies Marvel. Oh yeah. It's like he was drawing it with his foot while he was, yeah. uh, and that's not anything because it looks great. Drawing yeah, no, it with his foot while he was correcting somebody else's Spider-Man face in another comic, you know, or yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> it's just something he's been so used to drawing. Uh, I do love, uh, again, I love Hulk in the Santa outfit. I love that the you know his uh, the Santa suit is ripped because of course it is because it's the Hulk and uh, yeah. whatever what in the heck is Nick Fury holding that weird uh, thingamajig it, that he's got what is that supposed to do it's some kind of Kirby esque contraption it looks very Kirby esque even though this is Ramita and I I don't know and for some reason uh, was Nick Fury going through a headgear phase 
at this time because I've never seen Nick Fury with headgear up. Like he, he's got like a light ray, speaking of Kirby, a light ray like <laughs> thing around his head, which I, I don't really know what that is, but it's, it's kind of odd looking, honestly. So I think I saw it. I must, I think I've seen that in another comic somewhere. Uh, I'm sure I, I could yeah. be wrong, but I think I've seen it. But, uh, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a, it's a great image of, of the five heroes that are going to be represented in this book celebrating Christmas. Uh, just exactly the perfect kind of treasury cover that you want. So on the inside of the book, there is the table of contents featuring some stock art from the Marvel bullpen. We see there, there's a, is that a, a is, he, is that Steranko, Nick Fury? Uh, yeah, it looks right like there. it's a Steranko, yeah, from one of the covers, and but it's like heavily, like, look like it's been like re-inked maybe, and I, I don't know where that power man came from, the Luke Cage, because he's got a ripped shirt. It's really strange looking. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the Spider-Man's like classic stock art, and then the Doctor Strange, that's the Frank Brunner artwork that uh, Don Post, uh, not Don Post, but Ben Cooper copied for their Halloween costume on uh, the further Halloween costume. So <laughs> there was a Dr. Strange Halloween costume. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, Ben Cooper, uh, made a, uh, it's really weird, but they made a get, they made in the seventies, they made a Dr. Strange, a red skull and a thing costume, Ben Grimm, the thing. And they also made jigglers of them. And I, a lot, which they sold alongside Spider-Man in the late seventies. And I'm not only, feeling that the why they did that and I would have to ask our buddy Brian Heiler is those guys kind of looked Halloweeny, you know, the Red Skull's obviously a skeleton, Doctor Strange looks like a wizard or a vampire and and uh the thing's a monster. So they just threw you know, they basically work as Halloween jigglers but they're Marvel characters. <laughs> so and they made I, Halloween uh, costumes too. Yeah. I don't think I knew that uh that they ever did Doctor Strange or in the Red Skull. Wow be I worry about some kid that wants a red skull costume for Halloween. <laughs> Be careful. Yeah. Uh, I think he's, I think he's a high functionary in, in one of the political parties nowadays. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so uh, anyway, anyway um, yeah, we've got this, uh, this uh, table of contents. We drink some stock art. And then the first story is uh, "Twas the night before Christmas. Uh, it is from Nick Fury, agent of shield number 10. It's by Gary Friedrich, Frank Springer and Johnny Craig. Uh, Nick Fury's Christmas Eve is spoiled when he receives word from S.H.I.E.L.D. that the hate monger is launching a biological weapons attack on New York City. While investigating, Fury is captured and strapped to a bomb that will explode over the city. As the bomb plummets, hate monger climbs into a small aircraft to make sure Fury has not escaped at the last second. Suddenly, an unidentified flying object whizzes past, causing hate monger to become distracted and fly his jet into the bomb, causing it to explode, but too high above the city to cause any harm. Fury falls into the river and is rescued. Back at his apartment, he watches the sunrise and wonders just what, or who, that strange craft that saved New York City could have been. All right, so Chris, uh, what, are you, have you read much Nick Fury, solo Nick Fury, either as part of the Howling Commandos or as the Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff? You know, I've read it here and there, but I, you know, I've, I've read some of the Stranko stuff. I've read some of the early Lee Kirby Howling Commando stuff. Uh, but uh, I, I really need to go back and, and, and read, read this, uh, read this run. Unfortunately, I noticed on Marvel Unlimited, just the Stranko issues are on the Marvel Unlimited app. So, mm-hmm. uh, which is like, it's like, come on guys. I mean, that's just, it's a classic series, no matter who did it. I know. Steranko is Steranko. I've, I've been on an elevator with the man, you know, he's magnetic, but, uh, you know, <laughs> obviously, but, uh, you know, it's, I, I think they need to put the whole thing on there, but I really, I would really would like to read more. I definitely would. 
What did you think of this story? You know, I liked it. I, I think it's kind of like, it, it, it kind of feels almost like the Denny O'Neill ghostwrite this story because Denny O'Neill loved to have, it was usually the, 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 the Christmas star, you know, come in and blind somebody in a Batman tail so Batman could take a crook out or, you know, lead the way to something. But here instead it's, it's more secular because it's hinted that it might be Santa Claus that causes the hate mongers jet to, you know, crash and, 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 and dislodge the bomb and make it go off in, in space or whatever. But, you know, I, I thought it, I thought it was cute. I, I like Nick Fury's dialogue and I, the, the, the Frank Springer art was really like some pages. It looked really great. And he was definitely channeling Steranko on that splash. He was oh, also totally. channeling Will Eisner. Will Eisner on that yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, so I thought that was interesting, but it, it's, it's uh, some of like the, the second page where he gets, uh, you know, attacked by those people. It's like the art's really crude on those pages, but on other pages, he really is trying to keep the Stranko quality up. So it's just really strange. Maybe it was a, a rush job. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I don't think I knew that Johnny Craig, you know, the EC Johnny Craig uh, ever did any work for Marvel. So I was a little surprised to see that he inked this. Uh, and then, yeah. yeah, I agree. Some of it was, some of it was pretty pretty crude looking, I had to say. Uh, I was like, wow, this is kind of really... Now, so this is the kind of thing that being at the treasure size didn't really do it a lot of favors, necessarily. Yeah. Uh, and then Gary Friedrich, I, I feel like this is early enough on that a lot of these writers were probably just probably being told, just write it like Stan. Because, yeah. I mean, some of the dialogue, I mean, the, there's this part where a bunch of Heatmonger's goons attack Nick Fury, and they're like, death to Fury! And Nick Fury's like, son of a gun, imagine the hate monger going to all this trouble just for me. Just while you may, pig, for as long as you last, your incredible luck is about to desert you. I'm like, wow, they are just channeling Stan. Like, people are just saying stuff like, what? I've been distracted for a moment. Like, they're just, it's so heavily Stan uh, that I think that all these writers were, you know, probably just like, yeah, just do it like Stan does it. It probably took them all a couple of issues to kind of be like, all right, I can maybe... Again, I don't have to copy Stan quite so heavily. Yeah, I think at that point it was like Stan's like, I can't write everything now, yep. and and my brother Larry can't script everything now. So mm-hmm. you guys just write like me, okay? And uh, yep. and that's definitely what's going on here. It it feels very Stan Lee. You're right. Yeah, the yeah. It, it, it would fit in perfectly if there was a Nick Fury Marvel superheroes cartoon in the '60s. You could see this being oh, adapted totally. into into that format yeah absolutely yeah yeah (laughs) so yeah it's a fun it's a it's a cute little story i mean the idea that you know again perhaps that it was santa claus distracted the hate monger uh you know i love that like nick fury you know he floats down into the east river because the the, you know when they when the bomb explodes the the plane explodes and he floats down and he floats down into the east river now we see that like okay he's gonna get picked up by the harbor patrol but i mean i think if you plummeted into the east river in december you would you would not survive a really long time. Like, <laughs> like it's pretty cold. Uh, I know he's Nick Fury and he's tougher, but it's like, you know, I think he was, I hope that Harbor guy got to him really quickly. Yeah, he's got that, what, this is the infinity formula circulating in his veins to keep it in Oh, that's younger. true, that's, that's true, that's true, yeah. He's like, he's, Maybe that's what it is. Too. Yeah, that's right. We had, they, they, had to, they had to, you know, explain, wait a minute, how did he fight World War II when he's still vital? Uh, 20 years later without being uh, Captain America frozen on ice. So, so yeah, it's a cute little story and it's obviously perfectly uh, holiday themed uh, kind of story. So, all right, so let's move on to the next one. Uh, Chris, don't you take it away? 
Yeah, our next story is Spider-Man Goes Mad, reprinted from Amazing Spider-Man number 24, May 1965. The mighty script was by Stan Lee. Hey there, Stan. Uh, powerful art by Steve Ditko and a lot of lettering by S. Rosen, which is Sam Rosen. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson is inspired to coerce the public into giving negative opinions of Spider-Man and running them in the Daily, in the daily Bugle instead of his own for a change. This in turn gets the fickle population of New York to turn on Spidey, and Jameson is visited by Dr. Ludwig Reinhardt, supposedly a noted psychiatrist, who tells Jonah that Spider-Man must be on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Jameson publishes Reinhardt's theories, and an already agitated Peter Parker becomes concerned Reinhardt may be right. On his way to the Bugle offices to locate Reinhardt, Spidey sees silent images of his old foes, Dr. Octopus, the Sandman, and the Vulture, who appear out of thin air, attack him, then disappear. Believing he's a menace, Spider-Man seeks out Reinhardt at his home since his address was conveniently printed in the bugle. There he finds Reinhardt's offices upside down. Reinhardt pledges to help the young hero who again sees his foes appear before him. Meanwhile, Jameson has learned Reinhardt is no doctor and heads to his home to confront the fraud. On the way there, he's spotted by Spidey's biggest fan and Peter Parker's biggest rival, Flash Thompson, who dogs Jameson about his smear campaign against his hero. When Jameson and Flash arrive at his house, Reinhardt has almost convinced Spidey that his dual identity is the source of his psychosis. Jameson's allegations of fraud stop Spider-Man from spilling the beans, and Reinhardt runs off, activating the illusion Spidey saw earlier, now also witnessed by Jameson and Flash. Spidey tackles Reinhardt and, unma- and unmasks him to reveal his old foe, the master of illusion, Mysterio, who then conveniently explains how he pulled the whole hoax off. When Jameson realizes his actions saved Spider-Man from exposing his identity and ending his career, the publisher is beside himself. So that's a lot of fun, but in no way a Christmas story. What you think of that one? <laughs> I, I, that was the first thing I wrote down. I was like, well, this puts the grab in grab bag uh, because there's no, this has nothing to do with the holiday season at all. Uh, I think it was probably just they wanted to get Spider-Man in here because he's Spider-Man. You know, right. He's the marquee character of the Marvel Universe. There's a reason why his movie... Uh, over the weekend made $260 million in its opening weekend uh, during the a pandemic. pandemic. In the middle yeah. of a pandemic. People love Spider-Man. Um, yes. One of the things, the, the main thing that I got from reading this again is, and I don't, you know, it's not like I'm not familiar with Steve Ditko. I'm very familiar with Steve Ditko. But when I was rereading this story, it, it sort of reminded me how odd his art style is. When you yeah. look at it, to how much the Marvel unit, like how much Spider-Man has come to define the Marvel universe. He is their marquee character. Um, I heard someone say on a podcast today that he is the most recognizable superhero in the world, more than Mm. even Superman and Batman at this point. I don't know if I would buy that about Batman, but anyway, that's a whole other argument. But like you look at these early stories. I mean, you know, Ditko drew the book for like the first three years. How idiosyncratic these stories look. And when you think yeah. about how much Kirby was doing the pretty much the rest of the Marvel lineup and you just had Ditko doing Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, just how strange these stories look. I like it. It's not at all a knock, but it's just like, wow, these Spider-Man was so distinctive in its early days. Yeah. I mean, people have commented before, you know, Ditko's people aren't really attractive. I mean, even when he's no. trying to draw an attractive woman, it, they're not. I mean, it's just, there's a weird quirkiness about them. And that's, 
that's one reason why the, the strip changed quite a bit when John Romita came on because he was a romance artist and suddenly yeah. everyone was beautiful. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, Peter Parker was handsome and, and all his, you know, thank God, you know, y'all, uh, everybody's always like, Oh, thank God. They never did show Mary Jane until John Romita <laughs> took over because they kept hinting at her, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the other women would be like, Oh my God, she's gorgeous. Is she, she interested in Peter? Oh no, you know. And then when she showed up, John Romita, of course, threw in that famous panel. But what if Steve Ditko got to her first? You know, that, and that's nothing <laughs> against Ditko because I mean, no, there's no, no. there's some there's but there's an energy to his to his art. There's a there's a spidery quality. There's this weird, quirky, uh, kind of uneasy quality to his work. I mean, when he shows Spider Man with Peter is so distressed about that he might be going mad. I mean, he really looks like, I mean, it looks like, it looks like Lon Chaney Jr. and the Wolfman when all the, <laughs> you know, the, the montage of images are swirling around him when he thinks he's cursed to be a werewolf. That's what it reminds me of. You know, he's, he's got that, he's, he's a master at that, that paranoia that he can like put into the, into the artwork, you know, and it's, it's, it is, it's, it's a strange that it became, that it clicked the way it did. And I have to feel like at this point, and I know that was a huge contention between Ditko and Lee, that Ditko was plotting these stories because the way that the public turns against Spider-Man so easily and that it hmm. points out how fickle the public is, that seems very Steve Ditko. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I, do think, I do think Steve had a slightly more negative view of society than maybe Jazzy John Romita did. Or yes. certainly Stan Lee. Uh, yes. But yeah, it it really I, reading it at the treasury size too. Just seeing that's another thing. Uh, I always like to you know, sort of think about when they when I'm doing a, a treasury comic that's reprints. Does the artwork gain something from the larger size, or does it lose something from the larger size? And some artists, when you blow their work up, you see some of the flaws a little more clearly, and you go, eh, maybe not. But Ditko's work is so busy, and again, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but it's it, his panels are packed with yeah. people and things and there's lots of dialogue that uh, I've always found uh, actually reading a sort of regular sized issue of Spider-Man to be a little bit of a chore because the panels are so dense. So seeing them just slightly larger here to me just gives them a little more room to breathe. So it was, it was fun to read. Now you notice something that this story is very different from the actual original printed version, right? Right. Yeah. It is cut up. There's panels at the very beginning that are cut out that show Peter before we see him as Spider-Man because it does open very abruptly after the splash page. Uh, There's panel panels where he's talking uh, about seeing Betty before he actually, she actually shows up. Uh, They had to restrip those into a new page layout, but because Ditko relied on that nine panel grid so much, it was probably pretty easy, you know, uh, and, and that's one thing that nine panel grid is probably one reason why it does look better blown up because he, like you said, he put so many intricate lines. I mean, look how many lines are on Spider-Man's costume under dead co. I mean, mm-hmm. Ramita simplified it, you know, his webs are really, you know, simplified by the time Ramita's at his stride, you know, Ditko just drew way more webs on him. Honestly, that alone looks better blown up. So, but yeah, they definitely cut this, uh, they definitely cut this up. And I have to feel like they did with Nick Fury too, because there was uh, that big splash panel page of the hate monger 
yelling silence at no one uh, makes me think there was another another page where a subordinate was talking to him or something. So. The inside back kind cover. Yeah, on the inside back cover, uh, it, it prints the uh, the covers from these stories. And it instead of it printing the Spider-Man story, uh, it prints the cover from Marvel Tales. And uh, that may, I, I, I mean, that's them being, I guess, a little bit, you know, a little more honest. But I wondered if when they did, when they decided to reprint it for Marvel Tales, that's when they did all that cutting and pasting. And then when it yeah. came time to reprint this, they just said, well, we already did all of that. So let's just use the sort of Marvel Tales version of it. Or they didn't know it, that that had been cut up and they had stats for that. So they just used it. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's true. Maybe it's that's very true. possible because I've seen that happen with, um, you know, they're uh, the, like in the Batman Illustrated by Neil Adams. They're, uh, you know, they they print the old Brave and the Bold comics that he drew, and some of his earliest Batman works in the Batman and Aquaman team up. There's strangely the Aquaman logo from the '86 miniseries used instead of the classic Aquaman logo. That's because they pulled those stats from that Best of the Brave and the Bold miniseries they did in the late '80s. Uh-huh. So. That those reprints once it gets reprinted incorrectly once it can show up again and again. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so this is, it is weird, but this is this is fun, and I don't know about you, but when I when I read a Spider-Man comic, especially of this era, I hear the I hear Paul Souls from the '60s cartoon in my head. I hear his Peter Parker and his deep voice Spider-Man. I just, <laughs> it's so ingrained in my brain. Now I hear J.K. Simmons as, as Jameson. He's, <laughs> he's totally taking over. He, he yeah, owns that yeah. role. He does. He owns that role at this point. He totally does. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a fun story. I get it. I, it took me after I reread it again. I was like, wait, there's no, there's no Christmas here at all. But I was like, well, all right. They did, they did say grab bag on the cover. So, yeah. you know, that's what a grab bag is, is a loose collection of things. They were like, Hey, look, there's some Christmas stories. Spider-Man's, it's good enough. Spider-Man's fine. Um, so, okay, uh, let's move on to the third story. This is Jingle Bombs from Hero from Hire, Hero Fire number seven by Steve Engelhardt, George Tuska, and Billy Graham. Uh, while visiting a medical clinic where his friends work, Luke Cage happens to spy a child being beaten by a man in a Dickensian-style dress. Later, as Luke and his girlfriend Claire are out for a walk, Dan Catterwood appears to be a war vet. Upon giving him some change... The man has a bout of shell shock and attempts to shoot them with an automatic weapon. Luke quickly disarms the man and breaks his gun, feeling sorry for the guy, that, and they leave him be. This vet, who they, we learn is named Marley, however, turns out to be the same man that Luke stopped earlier from beating up the child. After taking Claire out for dinner, the two are attacked by Marley yet again. This time he is dressed like a futuristic policeman, demanding their identification cards and attacking Luke with a laser. Luke manages to subdue Marley and turn him over to the police. However, the man escapes. Marley gets the drop on Luke again, managing to knock him out while disguised as a charity Santa Claus. Waking up, Luke is face-to-face with Marley, who tells him that the entire evening's episode was to see if there was still any good in mankind. He plans on destroying New York City with a nuclear bomb of his own design at dawn. However, before he can detonate the bomb, he is distracted by the sound of someone coming down the chimney. This gives Luke the chance to stop Marley and destroy his detonator. With Marley incapacitated, Luke is surprised to find that the person coming down the chimney was a would-be thief. However, having just saved the city, Luke allows the thief to stumble through his explanation and the two watch the sunrise as Christmas Day finally arrives. All right, so Chris, uh, some thematic and story similarities to Nick, Nick to uh, the Nick Fury story, I would say. 
Yeah, it, it, there definitely is. This one, this one's odd, man. It's it's really got that 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 new young writer from the seventies vibe about it. Like it's hard to tell what kind of drugs these guys were doing when they were writing <laughs> this stuff. I mean, it, I have so many questions because why does this guy still look so young if he was around in World War II? Which they explain. We said that about Nick Fury. Uh, I know it's only thirty years later, but he's he's strong. He he's able to knock Luke Cage out. Uh, in, you know, which he's bulletproof and everything else, but he's able to knock him out dressed as a street Santa. So it's, it, it's, it's really, it's, this is really odd. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just odd. I just, uh, you know, I, it's, it's fine, but it's really weird. So, <laughs> I mean, how, how is this guy have all these powers to kind of do all this, you know, like yeah. he has all this and, you know, he seems, is he, is he sort of like an immortal character as you're talking about? Cause he said he's like fought in world war two and he's got, he has all these modes of dress to kind of dress. I mean, it, like stuff just happens because it does in this story, uh, yeah. and so you're just like, well, all right, you just have to kind of go with it. Um, the thing, my big takeaway again, there's that similarity of oh, the villain gets distracted by somebody, and that gives the hero our chance to, you know, to stop him. And I don't know whether the people assembling this comic did that on purpose. They were like, oh, oh, cool, it's kind of the same thing, or they just weren't paying attention to it and they were just happy to get two Christmas stories uh, in the book right. and nobody paid attention to the fact that it's kind of the same denouement here for both stories. Um, but the thing I liked the most actually, and I think we've talked about this on other podcasts. I know Shag and I have when we were talking about the various issues of Justice League over on Fire and Water. I, I like George Tuska's work. Uh, I think he's, you know, he's a great artist. I yeah. don't know. I don't think he was a great match for superheroes. I think he was one of those guys who came, you know, he came out of crime comics. And I think, you know, as those, as the other genres started to fade, the only work available was superheroes. So he did superheroes. And I just don't think he was necessarily that suited to it. Those issues, you know, those issues of Justice League that he did later on, I'm I'm not a big fan of. Um, And I know he had some other runs on, on some other titles. So, but I will say, I actually really like the artwork here. Uh, for the Luke Cage comic, there's some, there's, it's got a, it's got a fun looseness to it, a slight cartoonishness to it, uh, that I really enjoy. And the fight scene, particularly, and I'm going to put this up on the gallery page, the fight scene, uh, on page 51 of the treasury, where it's this mm-hmm. knockdown drag out battle, and it's three solid panels just in silhouette, yeah. and then it's colored monochromatically. They look like color forms. Uh, and yeah. they're to me, they're really gorgeous looking like you, you know, again, you're an artist. I'm an artist doing silhouettes is kind of cheating, obviously, because you don't have to draw the detail, but it really works. It just kind of gets the, it really has like a nice kinetic energy to it. And to me, those are really, they're like really pretty panels. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. I, I like the art in this too. And I, I, you know, the Billy Graham being a, he's a more illustrative artist, um, than Tuska. So it kind of, it kind of, um, I don't know, it kind of meshes well. You wouldn't think it would, but it works. And of course, Billy Graham was actually an African American artist, uh, which, you know, that's cool that actually had an African American artist working on a African American hero. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it, it works really well. I mean, some of the, some of the, uh, you know, some of the panels you can tell, like probably Graham kind of, uh, chose to get a little more illustrative than probably Tuska would, but it's still very George Tuska too. And George Tuska's teeth always just, I, I yep. can identify his art by the way he draws people's teeth. Yep. He usually gives people that, 
the, the Unitooth. You know, they've got one big, just like white, big white bridge. It's like, like they're got, a hockey you know, player with that thing. Or yeah, they're the boxers. I think they put in boxers' mouths. Right, exactly. It's like, you know, you can look. If, if you're looking up somebody's nose, it's a Gil Kane. If you see somebody's big hockey guard teeth, then it's a George <laughs> Tusker, right? So, but it looks good. It's, it's, I like it, yeah. <laughs> I also realized that the villain, when he shows up here at the end, he's even dressed like Haymonger at the yeah, end. With the hood. <laughs> so, it's the same plot, basically. You know, even the, the Haymonger's plot's the same. You know, it's, it's yeah. I'm going to blow up New York, you know. And, and yeah, it's, and I did think it was really weird that Luke was like, so in the spirit, he just put his arm around the burglar and they watched the sun come up. That's kind of <laughs> odd. You know, it's, <laughs> how's the burglar feel about that? It's like, like, uh, you're going to let me go, right, dude, when this is over? Are we, you just gonna let me go? Is that is that how this works? You know? so. He does. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the Luke Cage's uh, catchphrase was "Sweet Christmas," so I mean, it makes sense. That's right. Gonna get him in this thing. Uh, I also really like. I noticed the, um, for whatever reason, the Luke Cage story seems to have very unique sound effects: plow, wreck, plodow, plunk. Uh, like you know, they. It's most you know you generally have pow, biff, bam. You know, kathunk. You know, it's kind of like the same. 10 or 15 sound effects in a superhero comic chud at one point <laughs> he gets there with i feel like the luke cage is this very unique sound effect so uh yeah tusca brings a real fun loose energy as you say billy graham is an interesting combination and uh, as an anchor um i'm getting i've never seen george tusca's pencils by themselves i mean they, now where would i even see such a thing i don't get the sense that he was a really tight penciler i feel like his pencils are probably on the loose side and so Billy yeah. Graham is probably given a little more leeway to put more into it. But uh, it's a really, it's a really handsome story. The the panel of Luke Cage busting out of the chains, Cage breaks free. Uh, it looks great. And so yeah, even though it is very very similar to the Nick Fury story, to me it was more fun, uh, goofier. And I just and I've always liked Luke Cage anyway. So uh, yeah, I like that. I like the story quite a bit. Yeah, me too. So all right, let's move on to the next one: The Incredible Hulk, Chris. Yeah, The Incredible Hulk in Heaven is a Small Place from Incredible Hulk, number 147, January 1972. Uh, Stan goes first as editor. Roy Thomas was the writer. Herb Trimpey was the artist. John Severin was the inker. And Sam Rose, and him again, was the letterer. Wandering through the sweltering desert, the Hulk sees something that shouldn't be there, a small, idyllic town. Thirsty for water, Hulk enters the quaint village, expecting the humans to flee in fear as they always do. Instead, they smile, wave, tip their hats, and silently welcome the green Goliath. Finally feeling accepted, Hulk longs for only one more thing, someone to talk to. A beautiful blonde girl in a wheelchair begins to speak to Hulk and promises to keep him company. But the girl grows silent, distracted, and the Hulk begs, begs her to tell him why. Then she fades into nothingness before him. Hulk believes someone is trying to trick him, but then he looks around and the whole town begins to disappear. Desperate to have some place where he belongs, Hulk cries to the dissolving community to come back to him. But it vanishes like the mirage it always was, but that Hulk never knew. In anger, the jade giant slams his mighty fist on the desert ground and causes an earthquake, monitored by seismologists miles away. They can't explain what may have caused it, but they know that at least nobody was hurt. Nobody at all. So how about this one, Rob? I love this one. I thought this was just great. It it it's like a Twilight Zone with the Hulk in it, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I will. I gotta tell you, uh, I've mentioned this on uh, Mountain episodes of Mountain Comics, where I love the Hulk was my 
for, for the longest time, was my favorite Marvel character. I would say it's Captain America now, but for the longest time, Hulk was my favorite. Probably because of the TV show as well. And I bought, I managed to get Hulk twice a month because I always bought the Incredible Hulk and then Marvel superheroes, I've got, and, which was reprinting older Hulk stories. So it was like, great, I get Hulk twice a month. This is fantastic. Um, and so while I would argue that Sal Buscema is probably, in terms of his run, the you know the quote unquote Hulk artist, I would say of a certain era because he had so, he was on the book for so many years. In my mind, my favorite Hulk is Herb Trimpey inked by John Severin because uh, I saw a lot of those stories reprinted in Marvel superheroes, and I just love the combination. Uh, I just think it's great, and so I think this stuff. I mean, I love John Severin, and I think he was a particularly great inker for for Herb Trimpey. I love their Hulk, and so I just thought the story was terrific. I did too. I, I felt the same way. I picked up the Marvel superheroes books uh, like you and they were reprinting a lot of Trimpey and, and Severin and I, and I, I'm treading the same ground here, but there's, there's something about Trimpey's Hulk. He's got that monstrous part down, but he, he doesn't look quite human, but he's humanoid enough to evoke sympathy. And, and Trimpey seems to, draw a little more of that than maybe Busima did. And that's just me off the top of my head. Busima always, you know, if, most people in a Busima story are angry and screaming with spittle coming out of their <laughs> mouth. I mean, that's nothing against him. I love no, his artwork, no, no, but, no. but everybody's always yelling and they, they really need to <laughs> brush their teeth or something. I don't know. But, uh, but now in the story, I mean, you know, Roy Thomas you know, of course, I mean, the man's a, a legend in comics, but he gets a lot, a lot of people consider him a very plot-driven writer. Uh, but man, he can write a hell of a character piece like this. I, I mean, it's just, this is a really touching story. I mean, it, it really is because you really feel sorry for the look. He has no idea what a mirage is. And, 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 and that's all it is. It's, it's not, it's not the leader messing with him. It's not, some aliens trying to prove something or it's literally just the Hulk's in the desert. It's hot. He sees a mirage. He sees what he wants to see. And then it goes away. And he's just so upset by it. And you feel for the, the poor guy. I do have to wonder if he was so serene, why he didn't turn back to banner, but mm. uh, that, that seems to always like bother me in these stories. Why hasn't he turned it back to banner yet? You know? Uh, but yeah, I, I love this one. I think this is the best story in the book. Yeah. Even though it, again, there's no Christmas holiday element to it at all uh it doesn't matter again they're they're the spider-man and hulk are the marquee stars that's what's selling the treasury not nick fury and and luke cage uh but yeah i thought this was just terrific and again it's i i love a good one and done you know that they can Mm -hmm. just tell this little story and again it has that little i mean obviously budget wise they never would have done this on the hulk tv show and it's much too kind of elliptical i would say a story for not elliptical what am i trying to like it's a little too tone poemy for the Hulk TV show. But, but mm-hmm. in, in another world, you could see this being done as an episode because it is a one and done. And it is, if there's no super villains, it's not, you yeah. know, it's not Hulk in outer space. It's just him wandering around the desert, encountering these people. Yeah. I thought this was, I, I just thought it was great. I thought, you know, when you said that, imagine, you know, Bill Bixby got into directing imagine like, cause Banner's not in this. Imagine Bill Bixby just directing this episode and it's all Ferrigno for the whole episode. Oh man, so. that would have been cool. <laughs> yeah, it would have been. <laughs> that would have been really cool. Yeah. I thought, I thought it was, it was just great. Just really great. So, uh, all right, let's go into the last story. This is uh, eternity, eternity. 
from Doctor Strange number 180 by Roy Thomas. There he is again. Gene Colan and Tom Palmer. Doctor Strange has a dream of eternity who tells him that he survived his battle against Doremu. Uh, however, uh, when Strange approaches, eternity changes into nightmare. Awakening from the dream, Wong informs Strange that it's New Year's Eve. Taking Clea out to Times Square to count down to the new year, things get seriously weird when the clock strikes 12. As the new year passes, dinosaurs, barbarians, and other beings from other times start appearing in Times Square and attack the crowd, prompting Doctor Strange to don his sorcerer's guise, publicly revealing his true nature. Fighting these threats, Nightmare suddenly appears with Eternity as his prisoner. Nightmare challenges Doctor Strange, who naturally accepts, and Nightmare forewarns him that one misstep will lead to death. So, okay. I, okay. <laughs> I know that there was that brief period uh, where Doctor Strange had the mask. Uh, right. that, that was this whole thing. It's, it, but it, when my brain sees it, I cannot, I'm like, it, that's not Doctor Strange. <laughs> like, it doesn't, <laughs> it's such a strange thing, no pun intended, that I can't, yeah. it, to me, it, there's just such, uh, a break there that I can't be like, no, that's not Dr. Strange, even though of course it is, but I, I don't know. It's so, I don't know. Do you have this problem with the, with him and that mask? Oh yeah, I definitely do. I mean, it took me a long time because I think, well, the first things I ever saw was uh, with this version of Dr. Strange was something actually, I think lifted from this issue because I believe this splash page was turned into one of those third eye blacklight posters that they sold. In the <laughs> of course. And, and I saw those then I didn't see them at the time. I wasn't born yet, but I, I saw them in, uh, you know, in, in like toy, old toy catalogs and things like that, you know, like silly, you know, in, in, in toy shop magazine and then the early days of eBay. And, and I'm like, God, Dr. Strange looked like that at some point. And then I remember Bruce Tim saying they based the, the look of Batman beyond with that, a mask that can no way work in the f- real physical world on mm-hmm. this version of Dr. Strange. You know, and I, Mr. Miracle's also got a very similar mask where it's like goes into their mouth somehow. You know? <laughs> he goes right up to works. his lip. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's like, I mean, it, it, this is magic, so it kind of makes sense with Doctor Strange that he could pull it off. But yeah, I the artwork's beautiful, but yeah, I do. This look is is really weird. It's like, yeah, I can't, I don't see him ever putting, uh, I don't think we ever have to worry about this making it in the MCU. They're not going to cover up Cumberbatch's face. You no. Know, so. <laughs> No, that is true. Um, yeah, the artwork is is just fantastic, and I love when he goes to Times Square with Clea. Um, that was something I didn't read Doctor Strange regularly as a kid, but one of the things I always liked about the character was that he was more than some other Marvel characters, so firmly rooted into New York, and he was given like specific locations in New York. And as a kid, uh, I always, you know, I knew that I lived close to New York, but I was too old to, I was too young to. Well, I was too young to go there on my own, and I always wanted to. And there, to me, there was it, it was always very fascinating to know, like he was in Greenwich Village, and here he went here, and here he went, there. and it was specific locations. And so, I really like that him and Clea are out on the town. I love Clea; I think she's a great character. I'm frustrated that she's not in the Marvel universe, the Marvel Cinematic yeah. Universe. Um, yeah. But the story is fun, and again, it's it's you know be- beautifully told. Now, I have not seen the original comic. Um, so I am sure the final page has been doctored because the yeah. final, after Dr. Strange accepts the challenge from nightmare, which means this, this story is a uh, two-parter. Um, it ends on a cliffhanger, which is again, a strange choice. Uh, it, it, there's this drawing of Dr. Strange saying, 
As all true believers already know, the menace of Nightmare was once more defeated, and as one year ended in terror, the next began in hope. In the name of the eternal Vishanti, the whole blushing Marvel bullpen wishes you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. May the all-seeing eye of Amagato ever light your way. <laughs> like, I have, no, I have no idea what that original page looked like, but yeah, I'm, uh, you know, they obviously went in and took out a bunch of panels to stick this little thing at the end. They realized, oh, shoot, this story kind of doesn't stop uh, at the end of the book. I, I think that's funny, though. I, the, I, one thing I couldn't get past was I love Gene Colan's work, so don't come at me, Ryan. But sometimes Gene Colan's can draw people's feet like shovels, and that's what <laughs> Doctor Strange has got in that in that last picture of him. His feet are the whole – like his bottom leg from his knee to his ankle is the same size as his foot. I mean, his foot is huge. I mean, it's just <laughs> – He's like, it's like he was a great, maybe that's why he was a great artist for Howard Duck. I don't know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Not but throwing it, off on Gene Colan. It looks fantastic. He just draws weird feet sometimes. Yeah, so. no, it does look great. I love, I said, I love the, the giant splash page for the the uh, the clock. All the, all the creatures are jumping out of the clock. And the atti- I mean, yeah, it's yeah. all really beautifully done. It's just crazy. Again, you've got Doctor Strange fighting dinosaurs and, you know, they get them go into eternity and you see all the phantasmagoria stuff. So, it's yeah. it's fun and it's neat that it ends on a new year. It, you know, it's like a New Year's Eve story, which is is fun. So it's a nice inclusion, but it is a little strange that it ends on a cliffhanger. Uh, and then they had to kind of so hastily do this paste up to kind of like you know give some sort of idea that the book is is over. When you were a kid and you got a reprint book that reprinted a story that ended a cliffhanger, didn't it really tick you off though? I mean, it, it did me. Like you know, occasionally you get one of those in a. I, I didn't have very many treasuries when I was a kid. Uh, that were reprints, but I mean, I you know the the DC Digest occasionally would reprint something that they wouldn't reprint the whole story, or you know there'd be an odd reprint comic that would reprint part one of a story, and you never get part two, and it, I always hated that. So <laughs> if I was really into it, yeah, it would frustrate me. It really would. Yeah. I was like, oh come on, you know. Uh, but yeah, I, sometimes I was like, eh, all right, whatever. I don't really care that much about it. But but. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they reprint like a you know like in a digest or something, and I'm like, hey, what's the rest? <laughs> what's the rest of this? So, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I know that the treasuries had to fit things within a page count, and then when you're doing a theme like this, you probably don't have as many Marvel Christmas stories to to play with. So you know you're kind of limited, but it is a little bit of a strange choice. And like I said, it's Doctor Strange in that blue mask. Just I can't. It's like that's not Doctor Strange. It's just not Doctor Strange, yeah. even though. It is. It's it's a costume change. What's the difference? But he just seems so. And I, do you did you ever read why they did that? What the reason was that they wanted to make more make it more superhero-y? Was that the idea? I only yeah, know why they. I, had I guess. That. I I don't think I think Doctor Strange got canceled not too long after this. It was literally his his sales weren't that great. You know, I think he appealed to the the college crowd that were experimenting with drugs, I think in a lot of ways, but uh, the younger kids didn't, didn't seem to care that much for him. So they, uh, they gave him a more superhero look. And there was like some story explanation that he couldn't appear like in public as Dr. Strange, you know, even though he's out in public, he's wearing his cape over his <laughs> uh, coat, which I think is funny, you know, which is oddly enough. And this is no spoilers. You saw it in the trailers. What, Benedict Cumberbatch is doing when we meet him in in uh, Spider Man Far From Home. He's got a winter coat on with his cloak over top of it. So there's precedent for that right here. So I think that's funny. 
Perfect. 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 Yep. As as of this recording, I have not seen the movie. So uh, yeah. I am I'm I'm desperately trying to make sure I don't get spoiled. I mean, but I mean, you know, like I'm not staying off the internet or anything like that. We've we've talked about again, we've talked about this in, in numerous shows. It's like how crazy is it that like Doctor Strange is in a movie now? Yeah. Uh, in his own movie and he's, and he's guest he's starring in a enough. Spider-Man movie. Yeah, he's famous enough that when he shows up in a Spider-Man movie, that's added value. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Doctor Strange is in this movie too. Cool, you know. <laughs> Not just to us, but to regular people. To regular, like, yeah, regular people, like regular non to muggles, right? Yeah, to muggles. Yeah, muggles. Totally, yeah, yeah, the, they're like, oh, it's and it's not just because it's Benedict Cumberbatch; it's because oh, he's Doctor Strange. So it's amazing, like, yeah, we live in an amazing world that we live in. <laughs> Um, so that's that's the final story of the book, and then the the back cover we've got Santa kind of making like he's leader of this uh, Ursatz team with his hand out, yep. kind of commanding the heroes. And we've got Nick Fury and Luke Cage, Spider Man, Doctor Strange, and the Hulk leaping uh, into the fray off of uh, the the snowy rooftop, and it says a Merry Marvel season's greetings to one and all. So overall, Chris, we've done DC treasuries, we've done the DC Christmas treasuries, and we've done. Uh, Archie, we did Flintstones. How do you feel this holds up as like like a, as a single entity, as like a collection of Chris? Would you, as a kid, you think we would have been satisfied with this this amalgam, this uh, this collection of stories? Oh sure, I mean, I would have bought it for Spider Man, the Hulk, and everybody else would have been gravy, you know. Okay. Um, so yeah, it, it def it, it's it's great, and we did one other Marvel one before. That's uh, right. That's right. Since- we did. We, yeah, we've been doing it, but but yeah, I and I would have recognized the image of Doctor Strange because it, that same image on the back cover was used on a set of stickers that were uh, sold at Hallmark stores, and my mom managed a Hallmark store back in the day, and so she brought home like like stacks of those sticker sheets to me. Hmm. She just kept buying them for me, you know, like here I brought you another thing of stickers because I was sticking them everywhere, you know. So uh, <laughs> so that Doctor Strange image is is kind of burned in my brain as one of the images of him from you know from back in the bronze age so yeah and i love santa uh he looks like you know it, it's a very kirby even though it's ramita he's got displayed kirby like hands you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. uh so yeah but no this is I, I almost like the the back cover more than the front cover but yeah this is a great this is a great con it's fun it's a lot of fun these grab yeah they they can't do what dc does we've mentioned that before because dc had all those they had like 10 solid years where superman and Batman had at least one Christmas story a year yep. they could dip back into. Plus, they started doing them again in the early 70s. Uh, so, you know, they had a lot to go with. Marvel had to cheat a little bit, but they called it a grab bag. So they really weren't bait and switching you like, uh, you know, Superman salutes Bicentennial or anything. <laughs> That's the the <laughs> ultimate, uh, you know, example of bait and switch is the Superman salutes the bicentennial um yeah you mentioned those you mentioned those stickers uh similarly i had the marvel stamp set uh Mm. which was like that little thing you know it came with like a little ink pad and then you literally like stamped it and everything the bottom uh we have uh, downstairs in the my parents basement back in my old childhood home uh they have these built-in wood shelves for storage and um there are two entire sets of pillars completely covered in those stamps because <laughs> I was a kid and I was like, Oh, and I just covered this Marvel stamps. I was defacing oh, my parents' house, but luckily it was down in the basement. I never heard any grief about it, but every so often I have to go down there to get something for my parents. And there they are. The stamps are still there. <laughs> there's a, there's a metal, there's a metal cabinet that used to be in our, our, our mud room in our house when I was a kid. 
that uh, um, that that I put Hanna Barbera puffy stickers on. There were characters from Jabber Jaws and uh, <laughs> and the the what was the ones with the two dogs? Was that the Clue Club? I can't think. It was one of those Scooby Doo ripoffs mm-hmm. and and a, and a speed buggy and a couple other things. I mean, some of the more obscure Hanna Barbera uh, shows, and I put them on that cabinet. And it's it, my dad moved it down to his basement, put tools in it. And it's still down there with those stickers on it. So <laughs> 40, 40 plus years later. So <laughs> And they will be there until the sun envelops the earth millions of years. That's right. So right. there you go. Right. So, well, uh, Chris, thank you once again. These Christmas shows with you are, are always a blast. Uh, we still have, I think, at least one more Marvel Christmas yeah. question to do, I believe. I think at I think least one, one more, more to yeah. Do, yeah. Um, but so, yeah, it, it's always fun to talk about these things and, and uh, you know, cross off another classic uh, Treasury Edition uh, off the list of uh, ones that have been covered. So thank you once again for coming back to the show. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Rob. It's, it's always great to talk to you. And and I, I love when superheroes and Christmas combine. I just, I'm just a sucker for it. So I, I'm, I'll always be here for more grab bags. <laughs> Absolutely. So now as we're wrapping up uh, Superman 3 Movie Minute, what can people expect from you and uh, the marvelous Mrs. Franklin in the 2022? Well, we've got a, uh, we've got, we're actually going to do an episode of JSA, or I'm sorry, Justice Society Presents Starman. We're going to go back to the Starman Chronicles. We got that uh, ready to, ready to record. I've got notes written. Uh, so that's going to happen. And then after that, we're uh, jumping back into uh JLU cast. I think we're going to do a few special episodes to kind of fill in some of the gaps of things we hadn't covered before from the previous DCAU shows that led to uh, the justice league cartoon. And then we're jumping full bore into the justice league unlimited era of the show. So it's going to be wall to wall heroes. It's going to be a ton of fun. I can't wait to talk about uh, vigilante and shining night and, and Hawk and dove and, and, uh, and all those characters who show up early on in the first season of, of justice league unlimited. So I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. I loved Justice League, the series, but I loved Justice League Unlimited more just because it was all the heroes. You know, it was just yeah. so many people. So that that is going to be a blast. I look forward uh, to that. So, all right, everybody, thanks so much for listening. I want you to stay tuned. I'm going to play some podcast promos. And when I come back, I'm going to do some listener feedback. Welcome, one and all, to the Fire and Water Racetrack and Arena. Please direct your attention to the center of the track where you will see 36 buses lined up between two ramps, a tank full of live man-eating sharks and a high wire stretching over it all. The rocket cycle is warmed up and all the nets have been removed. Who would attempt these stunts just to entertain and inspire his audience? What kind of man? What kind of hero? There, coming in on a rocket-powered skateboard, it's the death-defying human flycast! Join me, Max Romero, and a rotating roster of guests as we dive headfirst into the colorful comics of Marvel's The Human Fly. The death-defying Human Fly cast is a limited episode podcast spotlighting the adventures of a man who comes back from a crippling auto accident to become a mysteriously masked stuntman with a mission to inspire others to never give up hope. We'll also talk about the real-life Human Fly, a daredevil with a murky past and a desire to be the best stuntman in history until the day he just disappeared. The actual human fly would vanish as suddenly as he had materialized, but not before sparking a comic series featuring what would be the wildest superhero ever. Because he was real. The Death Defying Human Fly Cast. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. 
It's gonna be wild. talking about weird stuff well then we've got just the thing for you into the weird a podcast chronicling the madness and magnificence of the mighty marvel bronze age of comics featuring the voice talents of mr billy delicious hola mr herman hellstrom low hey there and straight from the long box of darkness his infernal majesty dormammu how are you many more. But wait a minute, you might be thinking, aren't all comics infused with a grain of weirdness? I mean, Reed Richards can stretch every single part of his body, right? And why did Ultron design the vision with working genitalia? Well, you would be correct, but Into the Weird isn't just any regular comic book show, folks. We focus on the really bizarre. Here are a few examples. A sword and sorcery barbarian grown spontaneously from a jar of peanut butter. A duck running for president of the United States. Benjamin Franklin playing hide the sausage with Doctor Strange's girlfriend, Clea. A giant-sized man-thing lamenting the death of a clown. A serial killer obsessed with killing only fools dressed as cavalier with laser guns after witnessing a priest fornicating. And so much more. So if you like the wonderful weirdness of the Bronze Age from 1970 to 1985, and characters such as Ghost Rider, Morbius, The Defenders, Man-Thing, Son of Satan, Skull the Slayer, Kill Raven, Howard the Duck, and the weird granddaddy of them all, Dr. Stephen Strange, then this is the show for you. ITW's on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and TuneIn. Hit subscribe and join us for a comic-filled jaunt into the weird. Now it's time for listener feedback, and these are the comments we got for the previous episode of Treasury Cast, number 63, Howard the Duck, uh, with my guest, Dallin Baumgarten. First up is Robert, who simply says, I own Howard the Duck on 4K. Robert, very brave of you to admit, uh, and I have to wonder like, what the those 4K remaster teams were thinking as they sat there digitally cleaning up Howard the Duck. Did they wonder, well, what am I doing with my life or, or what? I don't know. Maybe an interview would be uh, appropriate for those uh, people doing that very hard work. But uh, thank you for admitting that. Uh, Phil Brown says, I'm so happy that you finally got to the duck. One of the hobbies I picked up to distract myself during quarantine was collecting and reading all the Marvel comics by Steve Gerber, who also led me to, uh, which also led me to discovering treasuries and this podcast. While there are high highs and low lows to his career, Gerber was definitely a brilliant guy who took big, bold risks and did things in mainstream comics that still feel ahead of their time today. Since you seem confused uh, as to why it took so long for Howard the Duck movie to come out, I thought I'd fill in that gap. It was actually a result of the Gerber's infamous lawsuit with Marvel over Howard the Duck. It was the movie rights being sold to Lucasfilm Universal that led Gerber to launch the lawsuit, in part funded by the the sales of Destroyer Duck, for which Gerber, Kirby, and the publisher took no fate. Howard's popularity had been fading since Gerber quit by the time the movie came out. The character wasn't even in comics anymore. There are so so many reasons why that movie bombed, like Universal forcing the filmmakers to create a duck suit rather than making him a Roger Rabbit-style cartoon 
in a live action world as planned. But the big one was just that Howard was the product of a specific time when the lunatics were running the asylum at Marvel and Gerber was firing on all cylinders using a talking duck as his mouthpiece. There's a reason why none of the Howard revivals have felt right, though Chip Zdarsky did an admirable job. Howard was Steve Gerber. Thankfully, the original books are still out there, including this fantastic treasury. P.S. While I'm glad you enjoyed the front-back cover joke, I'm surprised you didn't mention that it's a direct parody of the front-back cover of the Sinister Six Spider-Man treasury. Come on, man. You can't miss those specific treasury jokes on Treasury Cast. Um, okay, there's a lot to unpack there, Phil. First of all, I think I, I think I understood why, maybe I was unclear on the show, why the movie took so long to come out because I knew that there were lawsuits and all sorts of things. But I, I guess what I was more trying to guess was why they were still bothering, I guess. You think by the time 19... The mid '80s rolls around, and Howard the Duck's cultural moment had passed. That they would just have been like, you know what? Why even bother doing this? That's kind of what I meant. Is that by the time they got to it, why bother to do it? Uh, but yes, I know that the, the legal rights were uh, the, the sand in the gears there. Uh, regarding the back cover, I mean, I, I'm aware, of course, that back cover of the Sinister Six Treasury. I never took it as a parody. That's why I didn't think to uh, mention it. Uh, you know, it's not been the first time comics have done that kind of front back cover thing. So yeah, it's the same style, but I never really thought of it as a direct parody. So that's why it really didn't occur to me to mention. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, Colin uh, was parodying that cover directly. I don't know. Anyway, Chris Franklin from our network, of course, he says, fun show. I've also often wondered if Howard wasn't yellow on the cover of this and other comics. So he'd look less like Donald. Of course, eventually Marvel had to change the look of Howard to appease the mouse who now owns both of them, and Howard. Oh, the irony. I saw Howard the Duck as a kid, but I waited until the VHS release because it never made it to my town. Movie bombs rarely did due to the lag of our second-run theater. Infamously, I picked up the DVD a few years back when my kids were younger and forgotten some of the questionable parts of the film, watched it with them. Very uncomfortable and bewildering. The best part of the film is Jeffrey Jones, and now everything he touched is very problematic. So, yeah, bad vibes all around. I wouldn't be surprised if Howard doesn't play a substantial part in the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special coming next year to Disney Plus. Then maybe we'll get a spinoff. Uh, yeah, because I can't. I, I, yeah, the holiday special seems like the perfect place to to use him. Uh, so uh, I hope that that happens. Eric says, "Love this episode. This issue is one of my favorites of my Treasury collection. I believe the villains in this issue were all parodies, some more obvious than others, of prominent Marvel characters of the era. The most clear-cut counterparts are Doctor Angst being a bargain basement Doctor Strange, Tilly the Hunt standing in for Red Sonia, and the Spanker being a non-lethal version of the Punisher. A case could be made for Black Hole being a tick-off on Adam Warlock, since Starlin's series put such an emphasis on Warlock's soul gem sucking its victim spirits out of their bodies." The only one who doesn't quite fit this pattern is sitting bullseye, maybe a cross between Hawkeye and Red Wolf, but not really corresponding to either of them closely enough. I, th- I think you're reaching in some of those places there. <laughs> okay. Uh, the fair, you know, again, I could be wrong. Edo Boznar says, a great episode, gentlemen. Howard the Duck, whether it's a matter of the original or later series or the movie, always seems to inspire engrossing conversations. Personally, while I was familiar with Howard when the original series was still ongoing, I never picked up an issue. The young me just couldn't wrap his head around the idea of a funny animal in the real world, so I just generally avoided it. I only finally got around to reading the entire, entirety of the Gerber run as a middle-aged adult when I picked up the Essentials volume. Even though there were many aspects of it I liked, I don't think it's aged as well as some of Gerber's other material from the same period. That said, I like the stories that were included in this treasury. The original lead story in particular is pretty good and kind of makes me wish Howard had become a regular, or at least semi-regular, member of the Defenders. He'd fit right in with them. As for the movie, yeesh, I saw it in the theater, but in a dollar matinee double feature with some other flop from that same year, like Roman Polanski's Pirates. They were probably better users for that dollar. 
By the way, I kind of liked Radio Land Murders. Uh, you know, I mean, wow, Howard the Duck Pirates double feature. That that seems like some sort of weird punishment or sensory deprivation experiment. Regarding Radio Land Murders, I didn't mean to ding that movie. I actually saw that in the theater, and I remember kind of liking it. I, I was more referencing that it was a flop. It didn't make any money, and it was really kind of, again, the end of the career of the filmmakers, even though they had George Lucas behind them. Uh, you know, sort of getting their movies out there and getting them produced, but it was not a hit, but it was not meant to be any sort of knock on its quality. Uh, Ciscoid, of course, from network says, Q Ciscoid screaming Pirandello at his podcaster. Evergreen comment. Martin Gray says, thanks for another superior listen. I remember this one was advertised in the back of UK Marvel Comics, but I never saw it anyway. Ruddy UK distribution. Happily, despite its awful redesign, Marvel Unlimited is still decent enough that I was able to find this issue under Marvel Treasury Edition. There's only the original story, but I suppose that's all that's needed. I like the original Howard comics that I did come across. They felt so naughty, despite my rarely getting the references, such as the sinister Sufi and Anita Bryant. But how could a kid not love Dr. Bong? I suppose that's a drug reference. I missed that too. Of the characters introduced in the lead tale, I love the spanker particularly. What a great idea. I think he was last seen in She-Hulk. Uh, now, what was that sticker book you and Dallin were so excited about, Rob? Apologies if you mentioned it by name and I missed it. Uh, yeah, Dallin went and uh, provided the link on Amazon uh, to the book. It's just called The Marvel Sticker Book. And it is, I haven't picked it up yet. It's on my Amazon wish list in case uh, Santa wants to get it for me, but it looks like a lot of fun. Uh, Diablo Frank uh, chimes in. He says, I just didn't see Howard Comics in the Wild. So my primary exposure was the 1986 motion picture. They had that inexplicable ad campaign where they went out of their way to hide the main character to save either the surprise or shame for theatrical audiences. As a part of the target demo, it reeked of desperation and fear. So it was part of the majority that stayed away in droves. They might have done a reversal in the run-up in the second weekend, but by then the damage was done. I still think the animatronics and costume work were exceptional, as was the stop-motion Dark Overlord of the finale, so it was a monumental and costly blunder. Howard the Duck was one of my very first VHS rentals, part of my initial hot streak of Highlander and Big Trouble in Little China, joined by an early revisit of Aliens after my life-altering theatrical screening. Like Chad Johnson and a lot of late Gen X, early millennials, I recognize it as an objectively bad movie that I absolutely adore, as do all of my best friends. But Rob mentioned, quote, poor Leah Thompson, quote, with regard to the implied bestiality, all I could think of was her reclamation of the movie and push to direct a new version following years of fan outpouring at conventions. I'm as big a fan of Back to the Future as the next guy, but she's a lifetime crush because of Howie and the still overlooked casual sex, which forever worked my perception of Andrew Dice Clay. Captain Entropy says, great observation on what we fans really want, Frank. I think the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie, which basically used comics panels as storyboards, was another victim of its faithfulness to the source material. Sauntaron says, a comment based on a tangent. Connected to six characters in search of an author, check out Michael Sheen and David Tennant in Staged, a meta-comedy about the lockdown. Thank you, Sauntaron. Steve Given says, is this a safe space for me to admit that I saw both Howard the Duck in the theaters twice? And I even read the novelization. I was a confused, troubled kid. What can I say? The mind reels at a novelization of the Howard the Duck movie. Just what does that even read like? Uh, I think there's a podcast out there about movie novelizations. I wonder if they've ever covered it because that is, that's an uphill climb. And then finally, Brett Young says, I have to admit, Howard the Duck is a bit of a blind spot for me in comic collecting. I don't think I own a single Howard the Duck comic. I remember seeing ads for this, for his stuff in other Marvel issues. And of course, these ads were seared into my young mind because Howard would always be accompanied by a saucy redhead with awesome boobies. So in my mind, when you see a duck, there will also be awesome boobies nearby. It led to some disappointing trips to the park. Yeah, we didn't, <laughs> I probably shouldn't even comment on it, but we, we didn't talk about it very much. But yeah, the, um, the cheesecake uh, on display in the Howard the Duck number one was really, by Frank Brunner, was really 
quite well done. And uh, yeah, I think that might have been something that appealed to me when I was a kid because Lord knows I loved uh, Red Sonja. Uh, so anyway, those are the comments uh, for the previous episode. Thanks so much, everybody, for commenting. I really appreciate it. And uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Treasury Cast. Big thanks to my pal Chris Franklin for coming back another year, doing another Christmas comic with me. It's always fun talking uh, with him, no matter what show uh, we're doing. Maybe not always Superman 3, but you know what I mean. Uh, and of course, uh, for this show, you want to find all the back episodes are on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to Treasury Cast on any podcatcher of your choice. We're always talking treasuries on Twitter at Treasury Comics. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, let's go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And they're going to lock various rewards, one of which is to be name checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Jeff Pollier and Brett Young for their support of Treasury Cast. I really appreciate it. So as I said, that's going to do it for this episode of Treasury Cast. That's going to do it for the year, 2021 of Treasury Cast. Thanks to all my guests for coming by. It was a great year for the show. Uh, I really, really enjoyed doing it. And I look forward to uh, covering a bunch of treasuries next year. So uh, happy holidays, everybody. Have a happy and safe new year. And we will see you in January. But until then, go big or go home. David Hasselhoff stars in a world premiere movie event. Nick Fury, Tuesday on Fox. 